Hey listeners, before we get to our interview with Ross Haliuk, a quick word on how you can win a free copy of his new book, Cyber for Builders. We managed to pack a lot into this episode. So give a listen and share the link to this episode in a LinkedIn post. We'd love to hear your favorite insight from the conversation and be sure to tag the show so we know who you are. We will randomly select two winners to get a copy of Ross's book and some podcast goodies. Now, onto the interview. Yeah, and and you know you, you know what's what I find quite interesting is that in cybersecurity, the vast majority of the founders they're fairly technical, and because they're technical, they come with you know with decades of experience or at least years of experience, mm-hmm. and for that reason, they actually have a very strong opinion about just about anything in security, <laughs> and that kind of that doesn't help them. In fact, it, yeah. it, it works against them because they come with those preconceptions, they come with the assumptions, and when they talk to prospects, they don't talk to listen, they don't talk to hear, they talk to verify their own biases, their own assumptions, and they sort of scrap everything else that the prospect says that they don't mm-hmm. already agree with, and then they end the call thinking, you know what, that was a great call. I've learned a lot, but they're really <laughs> leaving that call with the same ideas and biases they went into. Yeah. All right, you know the show. It's Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks, the cybersecurity podcast that tackles the vendor customer relationship and everything in between. I'm George K with the vendor side. And I'm George A., a Chief Information Security Officer. And today we have Ross Haliuk, Head of Product at Lima Charlie, author of the beloved Venture and Security Newsletter, and now best-selling author of the new book, Cyber for Builders. Welcome to the show. Super happy to be here. Yeah, so we normally ask about origin stories about getting into cyber, but today we're talking about your book, and we got a lot of ground to cover there, so let's start in that direction. So you've been writing the Venture and Security Newsletter for some time. Why don't you talk to us about how you got started with that project and how that led to your writing a book? Yes. Uh, so I'm an operator. And as an operator, I have been building products in several industries for the past decade. I was in e-commerce, retail, wholesale, financial technology for a number of years. And then uh, I ended up in cybersecurity. So the moment I did, I honestly fell in love with the industry. I knew I, I knew I had to learn quite a bit. So I started reaching out to a bunch of different people, attending events in the industry, reading as much as I could and really trying to understand uh, what are the different players in the ecosystem, what are the different trends that are impacting the, you know, the probability of startups succeeding. What do I need to do as a, as a product leader for me to get Lima Charlie in the right spot? And what do I need to do if I want to grow in this field for the next several decades to come? And so as I did that, I uh, naturally accumulated, I want to say, tens or maybe even hundreds of different notes in Google Docs and all around, you know, on old-fashioned paper, which probably nobody uses these days. And at a certain point, I was like, well, I guess if it's taken me so much time uh, trying to piece all of it together, maybe somebody else is going to benefit from it. So I wrote an article and a few people liked it. I looked at at, at the thing and I said, you know, I can probably write 
another one and I wrote a second one and then the third one and uh, <laughs> on and on and just so happened that at first about 500 people sign up then a thousand people then two then three then four and at a certain point I realized that well here I am I have a newsletter and uh, I am focusing on the business side of cybersecurity and there is literally almost nobody else that does it so this is now a thing that I do over the course of my my weekends. Every weekend, Saturday, Sunday, that is the area of my focus. That's really the story. There is no, you know, there was not a big plan of becoming a cybersecurity blogger, like none of mm -hmm. it. It was just me starting with one article and then uh, sometime later, I feel like I cannot stop because people start complaining, start messaging me and saying, <laughs> hey, when is the next, when is the next issue? Yeah. All right. Well, that's a, that is a great place to start. So George, I'll turn it over to you. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, it, it's really good. Like kind of, you guys start that way, Ross, um, you know, because there, there is analytics available for the cyber business, but it's all pay for play and it's not really made for the consumable open market. So I think the, the fact that you're writing style um is just it's so enjoyable you speak it like like a common person even though you're a very intelligent person uh it's really a credit to i think uh, what you bring to the table which kind of leads into my question you know you, you developed a solid reputation as a thought leader in the security industry now it's it's pretty well known oh did that given <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know given your generalist and product management based approach to building a cybersecurity business do you ever get any pushback from practitioners or secops purists for having more of a, a product and, and venture investment background instead of the usual ops to management life cycle like how big of a of a part did venture and security play into the success really yeah, so I I guess to answer your question, no, I don't get the pushback, and, and I'll explain why. You see, as a product guy, I believe that at the end of the day, what we are here to do is to solve problems that our users and, and our practitioners, our security leaders have. And as a result, I, I, I speak, see, I, I talk a lot through the newsletter and I share a lot of opinions, which I certainly do have. Uh, but for the most part, when it comes to talking to customers and people in the industry, I prefer to ask questions. Uh, and frankly, this approach of being somebody who asks questions uh, rather than, you know, than tries to insert his opinion in, into every single available spot uh, just make, makes, it, makes it much easier uh, talking, like to talk to practitioners. Also, I'm a big believer that at the end of the day, the success of the product depends on our ability to solve for those important use cases in security that practitioners are, are tackling in their day-to-day. -day. So uh, I see I'm a product guy. As you've said, I'm a generalist. I've worked across several different industries. And frankly, I never claim to be a, you know, a deeply technical security practitioner. There are some things that I understand intuitively just because they're common sense. There are others that I, I've learned by, you know, by doing, you know, spending time playing with different tools and uh, reading and talking to other people. But at the same time, I would never put myself in, in, in the same line or in the same spot as somebody who is spending their, their, their days and their life, their professional lives in, you know, in, in a SOC or in, in the on the security engineering team. 
So as a result, I prefer to have less opinions and ask smarter people. So you you come from a place, we'll say, of a real genuine curiosity, right? That's been the success for you, is that your curiosity is kind of what drives your ability to network and, and make friends effectively and have people work with you. You see, I think, see, like, sort of going back to the beginning where you said that there are several different entities that are looking at the business of cybersecurity, I think I would challenge it a tiny bit because there are quite a few entities who are looking at, 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 this, at the security market, who are looking at the specific products and categories and abbreviations and what's coming and what's not coming. But the reason they're doing it is because they're being paid by certain entities in the space. So when you're being mm. paid by... by Mm -hmm. buyers of security tooling and vendors or providers of security tooling and solutions, the type of lenses you will get uh, and the type of angle you will develop when you look at the industry is very different than when you, you know, when it's Friday afternoon or, you know, Saturday afternoon and you sit down and you like you and you start thinking from the first principles of, you know, like, why are we why are we trying to reinvent the wheel in, in the area where, you know, software engineering, for example, already has some answers, how we could borrow them in, in, and implement them in security? Or have you look at the market and you say, you know what, like I worked in financial technology. There, we had over 30 or 40,000 vendors at the time. Now I work in, in, in cybersecurity and people complain that we've got too many vendors because we have just over 4,500. You look at it uh, critically, but you don't get that critical thinking when, you know, you're asked to produce a certain num certain type of report that talks about the specific market category, and you have to do it by 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 a deadline, and you have to feature a list of vendors. So, for me, that that genuine curiosity it sort of goes back to the fact that I like as a product guy, I'm being paid for understanding the customer needs, so the incentives are definitely aligned in that side. But as somebody who spends time writing a blog. I can pursue areas I am most curious about and I can scrap the stuff that I'm not interested in and just never go there. Over to you, George. Yeah, well, this is that awkward moment when I briefly interview my co-host. Um, so as a CISO, George, I'm curious if that remove from the interplay of vendor, buyer, analyst firm is do you find that view refreshing? Like, do you find the outsider perspective more valuable? I think the way Ross approaches it is valuable in that in that he's not he's not trying to come across as some kind of expert. He's not trying to give a pitched speech, or sorry, I should say like a well prepared, scripted kind of pitch at me. Mm -hmm. um, he's someone speaking from a, a genuine sense of curiosity and enthusiasm. Right. And, yeah. and I think, you know, you, you could take it in a sales context. You can take it in almost any context. You could take it in, in, you know, community dodgeball. Who wants to play first? Right. When someone has a genuine sense of enthusiasm, right, it makes you want to work with them. It makes you want to yeah. hear what they have to say. Like they actually care about what they're talking about. And that's yeah. kind of like the biggest thing where, you know, you can call it passion. You can call it a whole bunch of other things. But you can really tell the difference, whether someone's a technical expert or not, when they really care about their product and they really understand their service and they understand what me as a potential customer would get out of that service and why I would need it and why this conversation needs to happen. That passion yeah. is what makes it happen. So yeah, I'm I think I mean, curiosity. Cut. 
Yeah, I'm definitely going to cut this part of the podcast as you know, a self-promotional video. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, uh, you can pay me later. Um, the uh, the uh, <laughs> I was saying, like, curiosity has come up on the show multiple times, and I appreciate that too. That because you're not beholden to these incentives, and we'll talk about incentives in a moment, that you can bring in these other disciplines because you don't have a set of blinders on. Like, you know. Anyway, so to the subject at hand you are in the trenches in cyber as head of product at a startup you are also on the side a keen observer of markets and the investment landscape this show is about the vendor customer divide i am keen to understand with all of the perspectives that you have coming in and that you have to juggle day to day like what is your diagnosis of What's creating that trust gap between today's cybersecurity vendors and buyers? That is such a good question. You see, I, I, I almost wish I was on the other side of the pond and I could ask <laughs> you, what do you feel is the divide? Like, what does it look like? What do, basically, how do you see it? Like, I will talk a little bit about this because there's a part in your book that I think really articulates some of it. But I think that the divide is increasing because of many factors. One, we had this era of zero interest rates, which precipitated a lot of heavy investment, which also incentivized certain scaling of sales teams, which incentivized certain tactics. I think we've talked about that a lot. Um, I also think the market is dynamic. The buyers are changing. The people who are becoming the owners and the the people who are going to sign the SOW are of a different age. Like that generational shift is happening. So they have different proclivities when it comes mm-hmm. to like how they want to be approached. Anyway, I think there's like a, a big friction point between culture on the vendor side. Like I just have to sell, make my number. And uh, the buyer side, I'm sort of tired of being sold to. I want, as George has said multiple times, like partners that are like vested in my interest in trying to help me solve problems. So curious on your take, because I think you have a much more detailed view of especially the investment landscape than I do. Mine's at a bit of a remove just as sort of like somebody who lives in that system. But I think you've studied it a little bit more closely. Yeah, it is. It is definitely an interesting question. And I guess the reason I'm there's thank you for for that. Uh, It helps to understand what you see as the divide, because, you know, there are too many people in the industry who talk about, oh, you know, like vendors have to change their approaches. And it's like, yeah, but what does it mean to you? Uh, Which part, like, what do you think the, 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 the companies on the vendor side are doing that goes you know that maybe does not does not satisfy the the expectations of the buyers. So uh, definitely, there are there are there are quite a few p- bits and pieces in in, in what you mentioned. And uh, there is on one hand definitely the 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 growing number, the ever growing number of of cybersecurity startups, and the fact that the vast majority are venture backed, meaning they all have certain mm-hmm. growth expectations. They need to grow at a certain scale. They need to meet their milestones. Uh, they need to continue to meet their milestones and continue to grow their revenue and maintain a certain uh, certain growth rate year over year. Uh, and obviously that is pushing companies to, you know, to expand their sales teams, to become more aggressive in trying to uh, 
uh, tr trying to get to those numbers. But I think I think the ultimate reason why we why we see so many questionable practices, which obviously is triggering the buyers and and the, and, and makes it very hard for them to do to do their jobs, is that we simply have we have too few startups that are actually growing. We have relatively few startups that are actually solving like mm. complex problems. And we have a large number of startups that are either not solving real problems, so they're not doing the, the, the enough of customer discovery, and instead they have founders that are just building this the cool stuff that they wish existed, or maybe that they're in love with, or maybe solving the problems that they had, you know, five, ten years ago in in the, in, the, in the different environment without understanding that the market for that solution could be much smaller than what they've anticipated. Uh, we have, as you said, like we have a large number of, of uh, opportunistic founders and people who, when the interest rates were low and when the venture capital was readily available, people who said, you know what, I can build it. I can build it. I'm just going to raise, mm -hmm. raise uh, capital and go for it. And uh, like, let me be clear. I do think it's an absolutely, like it's a, it's a legitimate way of starting a business. There is absolutely nothing wrong with having several people come, come together and say, you know, let's find the problem that we believe we, you know, we can tackle and we can solve well. And by doing so, we can build a company and sell it over the next, you know, three to five years. I don't necessarily think there is something wrong with that. The challenge is that uh, the fundamental challenge of, this, of the security space, in my view, is that it is very hard for buyers to evaluate the solutions and to see and say, okay, this, this tool works well, this tool doesn't. And so what ends up happening instead, you have like all of those different founders with different motivations, different levels of, of sophistication, different, different levels of understanding of the industry who come into the space for absolutely different reasons, all offer some kind of a solution. And when those solutions are, are just brought and, and, and put in front of the, in front of the CISO, to make a decision, the CISO ultimately cannot cannot evaluate those tools and say that okay, this product works better than this product, or or a year from now this product is going to work better than this other one. When you look at other industries, like the number of vendors is not like the the, the large number of vendors is not a problem unique to cybersecurity. But mm -hmm. what you have in other industries is that you can actually evaluate what what the tools do. Like in in financial technology, for example. There are over over like thirty thousand uh, tools in, in in the financial technology space. But if you're buying, for example, an accounting solution, you can do some testing and you can figure out if the numbers it is outputting are correct or if they're not. If they're not correct, right. that product is is obviously going to go down because buyers will not buy it. But if the if 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 the tool works well, then the company has has the chances to grow. With cybersecurity, you've got all of those different vendors started for different reasons with different growth objectives, and and there is no way for you to tell the difference between 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 the tools because even if you can you can understand how one product may be different from the other one today, you don't know what new threats, you don't know what new attack vectors yeah. will be there tomorrow, and you have to make your bet today. So when you're choosing between vendor A and, and vendor B, you're essentially making a decision about which of those two vendors do I trust is going to be there for me a year and a half from now when something happens that I cannot foresee today. And that, that to me, is, is the fundamental reason why, why 
it's so hard for buyers to make decisions. Everything else are sort of the inputs and the components that, that make the market more grounded. But the fact that you cannot evaluate the tools is, is the, the core. Yeah. I love that. I love that perspective. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about the uh, promised based versus evidence based selling in the, in the next half of the show. Back to you, George. Yeah. Um, Ross, you bring up a good point where getting inundated by um, endless, endless new technology tools that solve, I gotta be honest, the minuscule problems. And I use the term problems very loosely. They're, they're, they're going after niches and you mm-hmm. kind of tell it's a cash grab. It's, it's a trend that um, I don't really like uh, George, George and I haven't really talked about it too mm-hmm. much because it's very much more of a buyer side problem, but yeah, I mean, you're, you've hit the nail on the head. It's very much a problem. Well, I, I, I do want to mention something else though, and I would be quite curious what, what you think about it. But you see, I think a part of the challenge is that a lot of the core and fundamental problems in the industry have kind of been solved by the large vendors. Like if you're looking, for example, if you're looking at the identity and access management, like it doesn't mean that we have solved all the problems, but we have solved, we are addressing the core problems. Uh, if you look at the endpoint security, if you look at uh, the cloud security, there are already solutions today that solve a lot of the core problems in each of those areas. So when the new stuff, like when when a bunch of new founders come in and they're, they're trying to look for that angle, for that wedge to enter the market, they, they kind of have no choice but to tackle the small niche solutions. And because yeah, there's so like many of them. nibbling the founders, at, the, at the margins. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's it's kind of like the the problem, though, where, like, again, we have to do more you know, consumer discovery to figure out what are the next generation of problems to be solved. Yeah. And that's that's a whole other separate podcast. I want to get back to your book. Um, I really like kind of going off track with you, though. Um, you have a great section talking about the value, uh, the value out of first time founders getting involved with incubators and accelerators to truly get their concepts from ideation to millions in revenue. Could you summarize for our listeners why they should consider uh, finding a local incubator to get involved with? And what would you suggest they do if they don't have such a startup ecosystem wherever they're located? Mm-hmm. It is a bit of a leading question, so I will start by by offering a disclaimer that I do not necessarily endorse any specific accelerator or any specific <laughs> incubator. Uh, no, but on the on the on the serious note, uh, I think I think what what is quite common in, in cybersecurity space is that uh, the vast majority of the of the founders or or the future founders come from 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 the pool of practitioners, right? There are people mm-hmm. doing the work today. And so when they when they think about the industry, when they think about uh, you know uh, the, lar- the players in, in in the cybersecurity ecosystem, they typically get exposed to those players and and what they are and what they represent by by looking at their products and by working with their products. But a product of any vendor is just one facet of that vendor. There is a lot that goes into you know into fundraising, there is a lot that goes into hiring, there is a lot that goes into marketing, sales, positioning, like human resources, and like all of those, like operations, all of those other sides of the business that are not necessarily apparent to to an average security practitioner who does not have the, you know, the, the, the exposure to the business side of the industry. And so I think that in order for you to start, like in order for you to have a higher chance of success, 
with which as a potential founder or as a future founder with whatever it is you're trying to build you have to understand the business side and like that that could very well be uh, like you could accomplish that by forming great relationships with every with a number of 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 functional business leaders in the company you're at today like for example if you're a security engineer at you know at a startup you can very well gain a lot of knowledge about the business side by by making it clear that you're interested in it and by building relationships with the head of customer success, with the head of product, with the head of engineering, and by having those this regular exchanges. But the vast majority of the people will not be exposed to that side. And even if they are being proactive, there's still like bits and pieces that they will not get access to simply because that's just not within their responsibility. So the second best way to get exposure to it, in my view, is to get involved as an advisor or to get involved as, a, as, a, as an angel investor, where in exchange for a very small sum of money, you can uh, get the ability to, like, to, to learn about building the company without necessarily going for it right away. Like you can get exposure to the, the problems founders are tackling and so on and so forth. But again, some people will find that a, a very interesting way to get involved with the startup ecosystems. Others will, will like want. So for, for somebody who is just a very deeply technical security practitioner and who does not have that exposure to the, to, to the business side or that understanding how to like what, what, does it take to build a company? Uh, getting some exposure to incubators, accelerators, uh, like online program slash educational opportunities that, that teach people how to like how to do it, like have have to start a company, have to incorporate, like have to have to do marketing, have to do sales. That explain to practitioners that just building a great product is not going to to enable you to build a business. That no, people are not going to come to you because you've got the next generation yep. you know, X solution. Like all of those things, they're critical to understand, but they're fairly hard to, to get exposure to. And they're fairly hard to, to learn if you're not, like if you're not already building something or if, or if you never went to business school or like if you're not a marketer like, like yourself. Uh, and that's, and that's where, where something like, you know, incubators, accelerators can, can, can be useful. Uh, they are, they are. I would say they're they're available in some countries. Like there are there are several of them in the U.S. Uh, there are a few of them in Europe, uh, and I will say in some other geographies they're definitely less common. But I think I th genuinely believe that it doesn't matter if you're talking to a cyber specific uh, to a cyber focused accelerator or if you're talking to you know to a business school or if you're talking to to to, to, to some other community of people who have that knowledge as long as you as long as you can find mentors and people to 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 learn from and to understand how to build a business you will be fine yeah it's an interesting point i going back to what you'd said earlier about you know sometimes founders are just building things that they wanted before. I also think there are a lot of serial founders in cybersecurity, people who have repeatedly built, scaled, sold, uh, acquired, whatever. And because they've done that journey, they also have pretty ready access to things like engineering talent, or, you know, they can work with venture funds they did in the past. They're sort of uh -huh. networked in. But I think that sometimes that also bakes in 
just previous behavior patterns that don't align to like where the market is today, right? Like, again, like let's nibble at the margins because I know I can easily get investment for this thing because I can demonstrate a return on, but it's really like in the larger scheme of cybersecurity, it's like nibbling at like this password list, whatever the key, you know, instead of like tackling a big, a big problem. There is definitely that. And and what you also see quite often is a a founder who has exited their company successfully before is very likely to try and repeat the same playbook when it comes to to market, when it comes to everything. Because and, and it's understandable because it has worked for them. It has worked for them quite well. The challenge is that markets change, the the environment changes, the security needs change, and something that worked for you even as recently as three or four years ago may not be a good way to start yeah i mean i've seen it repeatedly on the on the sales side like oh i've i've done this before at a dozen companies i was like yeah but if the buyer's proclivities change like you can't run the playbook from 2012 that you do in 2024 it's just completely different um great well that's a good place to take a break and we will be right back hey there your time and attention are valuable, and so we're very grateful that you lend them both to us every week. If you dig the show, we have a new way for you to support by becoming a Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks member. Lend your support in the form of a one-time donation or join one of our membership tiers for as little as $3 a month. Any support helps offset the costs of producing the show, and we can do more fun things like make more swag, run more contests, You can find the link in the show notes, and thanks again for listening. Now, back to our conversation with Ross Haliuk. All right, Ross, this is the most important question I'm probably going to ask you, because if anyone's listening to this, is thinking about being a founder, this is eventually something that's crossed their mind. At what point should first-time founders consider asking for investment, and where should they begin to look? That is an an, an indeed fantastic question. See, what's, what I find quite, in, quite interesting is that good founders with great pedigree, with great background, who understand what they're doing, who are solving impactful problems, for the most part, will not have to ask for, for an investment. Uh, investors <laughs> are fairly proactive, and they're always looking and scouting and looking for somebody who is solving an impactful problem. And frankly, in 2024, in, if you if you are in cybersecurity and if you've got a good background and and, and and a good understanding of the space, it may be enough for you to update your LinkedIn profile to founder in stealth, and you will start getting free lunches <laughs> and interest from businesses. So that is frankly just how 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 it works. Uh, uh, but on the serious note, I think uh, it, it kind of depends on the founders and what like what they're trying to achieve, really. Because like I personally believe that getting it is important to validate problems and truly understand if whatever it is you're planning to solve is something that you can build a company around. That's one. Is this problem is this problem important? Is it urgent? Like, what is the sense of urgency on the buyer side, side to solve it? Like, there's just so many, so many problems that security, to, security uh, teams could be focusing on. The question becomes, is this something that, that a CISO truly wants to solve and is truly ready to pay for solving, either today or, or you know, in the next quarter or two? If the answer is no, that probably means it's, 
you're not going to be able to, to, to get that budget. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you should not go ahead and like build a company around it or build a solution to this problem. But what it does mean is that you have to be very open and honest with yourself and say, okay, is this truly a venture venture size, like venture fit company? And the reality is that a lot of the companies that have received funding from VCs shouldn't have. <laughs> Like they, they, they fundamentally, like a part of the challenge is that there are some very niche problems that definitely have to be solved, but they don't require, you know, tens and hundreds mm. of millions of dollars for the team to solve them. And so just being open and honest about the size of the opportunity and like the size of the problem and the ability of the team to actually like build build a solution and expand from there. Because every startup, like every feature wants to be a product, every product wants to be yeah. a, you know, a company, every company wants to be, be a platform, but most of them won't be. Like most solutions yeah. that start as point solutions will either so, get sold or, or go out of business and will never become a platform despite whatever the founders believe is going to happen. So just being, being realistic about the market helps. Uh, and once you have once you have validated the the problem, once you know that your solution, like you have like decent evidence that your proposed solution is something that the customer would be willing to buy, I think it's important to ask yourself a question: Do you need to raise money? <laughs> if maybe you don't, and do you need to raise money from VCs? Maybe it's much better to go to your friends who are CISOs, who are security practitioners, and raise that initial small round just enough for you to build an early prototype and further validate and de-risk your idea. And at that stage, you may find that, you know what, maybe there, is no, maybe there is no real business and you have to pivot somewhere else. And that would be a better use of everybody's time and money because then you can pivot, you can, you can go to VCs and say, okay, here is what we've learned, we've pivoted the business, there is an opportunity here, as opposed to getting as much capital as, as you believe you can get from day one based on the pitch deck, which is still kind of possible if you're at an early stage. Mm -hmm. And then just go ahead and try to spend that money, hire a sales team, hire engineering team, without truly solving for a real problem. It's I mean, a bit this of a longer just, answer that you've, you've expected. No, but it's also more logical and reasonable, right? Because we were just talking about pattern repeats, right? Like founders repeat patterns. Well, it's, it is... I think it's natural to assume the market thought that was what you should do. I have this idea, therefore I go to VCs, therefore I do this, right? And a lot of it, like a lot of it is really the outcome of the VCs doings because a lot yeah. of the content you're reading in the industry comes from venture firms. And again, like to be to be very, very fair, like I have I have many great friends in 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 the VC space, like they're all great people, but the the their incentives that drive their Correct. decisions are not necessarily always aligned with, with, with the incentives that should be driving the decisions of the founders. And so going for this traditional playbook of saying, I've got an idea, I'm going out and, and raising VC money, it, in, in 2024, it can be a very bad idea because mm -hmm. it, it just it puts you on that spiral of spending. But I, I think I really love the answer because... Um, even just before I started my career in cybersecurity, like in 2016. So in the 2014, 2015 range, early 16, I took my hand at like trying to, to found a few startups. 
right? And they weren't cyber related. There were other things, but like a lot of the same struggles, right? And I had done the thing like in Invest Ottawa, like we have a, a local incubator here and I lived that life. And I, I, a lot of what you're saying resonates on a personal level because I've, I've seen that. I've been on the other side of that table and I've been through that thought process and like, hey, if I just get this, you know, $20,000, $50,000 or whatever, and I just get this equipment or I hire this person to do this thing. And um, yeah, you you learn the hard way sometimes, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, yeah. That was real good advice. I'll say that much. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm also going to circle back to this idea of, you know, going out and really talking to the customers and having that curiosity. In our last episode, when I was re-listening to it in post-production, with Meryl Vernon. And she was saying like, literally the one thing I look for is does it export to XML? Because if it doesn't, then I got to do a bunch of work to make this thing talk to this thing. And I don't want to do it. So it's like, do the solution providers that are solving for a technological problem also understand like all the process hangups mm-hmm. that their customer has? I think that's a very interesting way to look at it like if you could put all the dev resources into the the ui and this and that and then it just like hits this wall yeah procedurally because it just is hard to work with yeah and and you know you, you know what's what i find quite interesting is that in cybersecurity, the vast majority of the founders they're fairly technical and because they're technical they come with you know with decades of experience or at least years of experience mm-hmm. and for that reason they actually have a very strong opinion about just about anything insecurity <laughs> and that kind of that doesn't help them in fact it, yeah. it, it works against them because they come with those preconceptions they come with the assumptions and when they talk to prospects they don't talk to listen they don't talk to hear they talk to verify their own biases their own assumptions and they sort of scrap everything else that the prospect says that they don't mm-hmm. already agree with and then they end the call thinking, you know what, that was a great call. I've learned a lot, but they're really <laughs> leaving that call with the same ideas and biases they went yeah. into it. Yeah, that's that is that's brilliant. That's the the stinger for this episode. But that brings me to this next point. So you you bring up in your book, uh, and thank you, really happy to get that advanced copy. This shift from promise based to evidence based security buying, right? And the quote that I'm going to lift from the book is while vendors are and will continue to be expected to do the hard work, more and more buyers will be demanding the ability to look under the hood and understand the approach the company is taking to ensure their security. So, on a brass tax level, my question for you is I'm going to tackle it from a few angles, but like, first, what is your practical advice? Then for product teams, let me give you an example. Does that mean, and, and I heard you speak at the cybersecurity marketing con in Austin, you know, do they look for demo environments that show live data? I know product led growth things don't really work necessarily in cyber, but like, what does that mean from a product development perspective that you have to be able to lift the hood and see how it works and question it and, you know, whether it's understand an AI model or whatever the machine learning rules engine is like, what does that mean for product dev? I think, I think it means like, I think the answer is going to be very similar to the answer to the previous question. It means you have to go and talk to your customers. And the reason you have to, you have to start there is because depending, like when we, when we, when we say words, security products, it doesn't really mean anything. Like somebody buying a GRC solution is going to have very different 
patterns, very different ways in which they evaluate that solution compared to somebody buying, you know, a supply chain security solution comparing, compared to somebody buying an, you know, an identity and asset mm-hmm. management tool. So you have to understand your persona and you have to understand what are the, like, how, how do they specifically evaluate those tools? What I think startups have to keep in mind is that uh, there are certainly large and established vendors which can get away by not building their products access by not making their products accessible to the to the potential buyers to the potential customers by demanding that the potential buyer get you know attend 16 demos before they even even touch that tool <laughs> but as a startup yes. you cannot quite get away with that like you have to you have to do what those large vendors are not doing. Like you have to look for ways to make it easier for people to test your your tools, make make it easier for people to do the POSC. Like a large legacy vendor, like an incumbent, can absolutely do a six-month-long POSC because they know that a lot of the buyers will 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 go for it. As a startup, you have to have the ability yes. to, yeah. to, to, to show the value quicker. Because no buyer is going to talk to 10 startups and try each of them for a year in their environment. That is just not happening. Yeah. And so so that was product side. What does the move to evidence-based mean for the sales and marketing, like the go-to-market teams in terms of like how they talk about? Yeah, I mean, transparently, I think again, it will it will mean very different things depending on the on the customer segment and and the type of demographics that they're selling to. But fundamentally, I do believe that the industry is slowly starting to shift away from the sales teams that are trained on just repeating the script mm. and and moving away to people who, at the very least, they may not be deeply technical security practitioners, but at least there's somebody like security like sales engineers who can. Who can ask the right questions, point the prospect to the right solutions, and are not just you know repeating yeah. the yeah that. I think yeah. I think so. Meryl and I kind of touched on it, but I would say this: like, if you are selling me a product, like if you're if you're selling me a, a query based like a, a CM engine, right? Mm-hmm. Just generic. We won't need to call anything out. I need you. If you're the salesperson, ideally, ideally, you really want to knock me off my socks. It's not about the free Starbucks gift card or Amazon gift card nowadays. <laughs> They've really stepped up. It's about can you ad hoc run a command on your tool in front of me? Right? Like that's yeah. that's what I want to see. Can you use your tool? Can you <laughs> explain it to me in your words? Because if you can talk about building trust, I will automatically be more disposed to trust you and trust what you're telling me, then, oh, hold on, let me go get my engineer at the first slight usage question. Or um, let me go take 24 hours to load this seed data in to make it look yes. like it's <laughs> Oh, horror yeah. stories. Um, yeah, so, go yeah, ahead, so that's, like that, 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 that to me is, is truly the, like one of the changes that, that is happening in the industry. People want to hear from their peers so CISOs go to their colleagues, CISOs mm. go to their to their private communities and ask their peers questions. Ask them for, for feedback about specific vendors. And in those places, there are no marketing teams. There are no founders. They're just peers. They're just other CISOs. They're just other security leaders. So uh, I think companies have to be ready to compete in the world in which 
they're they're not able to interject every single conversation and just say how, how awesome their tool is. But instead, they have to rely on the word of mouth. They have to rely on offering good experiences. In the similar way, like sales teams and salespeople can no longer just trap people into mandatory demos or series of mandatory demos that they just help arrange after after a cold call. Obviously, like that that is still happening. And for as long as for as long as certain tactics and strategies will will be working in the industry they're they're going to stay but it is slowly shifting yep so so back to the book though because this is like again i want to pick your brain on the business thing but we are trying to promote the book and let people know that the book's almost out soon um cyber for builders um between channel and affiliate partners or direct to market sales in your experience what approach works best from a scalability standpoint if one is working with a founder or, or you know group of founders who are really just technical experts? Like just to speak to your last point, does does approach type matter if you're a peer services versus technology provider? I mean, obviously a lot of OEMs and tech suppliers make their gross margins off of selling follow-up integration support services. So let's ignore that for a sec. How would you help a group of purely technical founders out? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the reality of the reality is that about nine out of ten dollars in in the cybersecurity space, particularly on the enterprise side, are being are sold through the channel. So that is just how the industry works, and and that is mm-hmm. also something that many founders underestimate. They think that they can they they think they can just hustle their way into a large Fortune 500 enterprise, where the answer is they can't. Because like most of those enterprises have exclusive agreements with certain channel providers that they only work with and they only buy through. And unless you can find your way to start working with that channel provider, you simply have no have no path uh, to, to to get your tool into that enterprise. Unless there is a very innovative CISO with a specific budget on innovation and on you know trying yeah. some tools in their sandbox and so on and so forth. But I think to answer your question, like. Founders have, most founders have no choice but to start by selling direct, validate the problem, build a scalable way of, of getting their solution to the customer, build a scalable way to, to replicate like their, like this, like to run the same playbook that they create that works for their company over and over and over again and get to the point when they can sign enough customers so that they can go to the prospective channel partners and say like look like this is what we're selling today this is what we can do for you like channel partners yes, are incentivized to sell solutions that are actually that, like that are being sold that are being bought easily and that they can make the money on so you what what some founders don't understand is the, is, is the incentive system and it's the mechanics of how the channel yes. works. They think that, they, oh, well, I've got a great product. The channel partner is just going to take it and start selling. But the reality is that even if you sign an agreement with the channel partner, unless you've got the right sales enablement materials, unless you, you've provided the right training, unless the channel partner is going to make more money by selling your product than they will by selling the product of your competitor, you're probably not going to get those sales. So start direct and then go to the point where you can, when you can sell through the channel. Yeah. I think there's that, that pipe dream, which is like, oh man, if we could just sign with 
you know, some insert large var here. It'll be the gravy train. They'll just bring us deals like mm -mm, you are a rounding error on their yeah. balance sheet. You know, as a buyer, and this is kind of a weird nuanced take, um, we're I, I'm finding trying to move away from resellers, right? Because you're trying to save budget. If you have the direct to manufacturer relationship already, if it's possible to buy from them directly, then it's like, hey, why do I need to pay an extra 10 to 20 points for this reseller when the business is with you? So it's I, I know what you're saying. I hear you. I just I see a, a different perspective. So I just find it interesting. Oh, like do you 100%. Also think, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, George, do you do you also think that you are beginning to see the incentive machine play out on the VAR side where it's like your quote unquote trusted VAR partners just come and like knocking down the door to be like, Hey, I got this new thing. I got the, cause they just have stuff on the card that they're trying to sell. Always, always. always. And I don't blame them. I get the game. It's yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying that when you, when you got to worry about a certain amount of budget and you got to do mm -hmm. certain things in your roadmap this year and, you know, CFOs come down, you ownerships come down, you, we need to save an additional 400 K or 4 million or whatever. And you're like, I want to get this thing. And I can save, you know, collectively a couple hundred thousand dollars here and there by walking away from the reseller. And that gets me under budget. Yeah, 100 percent. You know, that, that math does not lie. <laughs> no. Sorry. All right. Go ahead, so, Sorry. Uh, no, what I, I guess where, where I wanted to go is essentially just to, to agree with you and to say that, yes, over the next like decade or so, I think there is going to be a change to the way value added resellers function. Uh, for once, the emphasis is now becoming more and more on the value-added side, not on the reseller side. The question starts mm. to become, okay, how are you actually adding value? Like, what, what expertise do you have? Like, what do you bring to the table? Because the, the, there was indeed a time where you could not buy from large vendors unless you, you would go through, through a specific reseller. That time is kind of gone. Like, the vast majority of the, of the, of the vendors at this point offer an ability to buy direct. Now, the vast majority of, of large vendors are still making most of their money through the channel, mm -hmm. and that is that is here to stay. So I think I think I, I do agree with you, like that that paradigm is changing, but I do also want to call out that for an average founder who is sitting at home and thinking how PLG is going to save all of their all of their problems and how they can now stop worrying about the channel. I think they should listen very, like they should be very careful about <laughs> making those assumptions because yes, things are changing, but those are the changes that will, 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 you know, bring the results over the next two decades, not in 2025. Like that's yeah, how I well think. Said. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, also like when I see series A, series B startups and they're like, oh, I got this new uh, sales team. And they're like, yeah, I'm like the enterprise sales rep. Like I've got JP Morgan. I'm like, you think? you think you're going to like cold call into JP Morgan and they're just going to go to like a demo or like, I just think that's a different, that's a different beast, you know? Yeah. And even on the direct sell side, like one of the mistakes I often see is founders of, of early stage companies chasing down sales mm -hmm. people from large vendors thinking, Oh, if this, if this salesperson has connections in, in Fortune 500 they, or Fortune 100, they can easily just ring their friends and bring me in. And the reality is that if that sales, if that sales leader moves from, you know, from one large, uh, large enterprise to another, they can absolutely do it. Like yesterday, they were selling vendor mm -hmm. X. 
tomorrow they would be selling vendor Y, they will ring all of their friends and their friends will buy from them. Not always, but more often than not. When, when, they, when they call security leaders from Fortune 500 companies and saying, hey, I've joined this startup, like, th- th- that changes the conversation. Yes, now, I think that's a question yeah. of like horizontal versus vertical. Yes. Like when you're like further down the ladder, you got to climb a little bit <laughs> to yes. get up there. And yeah. people would like to find those magic tools. They would like to find those magic solutions. But the reality is that in cybersecurity, so much of the purchasing process is reliant on trust. And trust takes a long time to build. And you don't build it by finding shortcuts. Some companies try. And uh, there are things that appear... To, that look like a shortcut from the outside, but the more resources you invest into it, the more you will realize that you can actually damage your brand and you can damage your your, your relationship with, with customers and prospects, and you can ultimately lose in the market. Yeah, I mean, we've said it before, and you brought it up here, CISOs are talking in these private yep. groups and channels and you've ruined your brand. Like you've torched like whole sections of the market, you know, based on erosive and corrosive practices. So, all right. So we're going to uh, end the interview here in, an, I think, an obvious place. So, Ross, the hypothetical, I have an idea. I have talked with my CISO friends. There's enough there there to merit founding a company. I've worked through an MVP. I've got some design partners, but it's 2024, 2025. Money is not free anymore. The landscape is different. It's not just go hunt logos, run ARR up to boost your valuations. Given these changes, what are your like top two recommendations to me as the next step? Raise a small round from the people you trust, from the people who believe in what you're building. If you have indeed talked to a large number of CISOs who are super excited, uh, it means some of those CISOs will be excited to put in their money into what you're doing. And if they're not, ask yourself if they're truly as excited as you uh, <laughs> believe they are. <laughs> That's the piece number one. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The, say, no, no. Literally put your money where your mouth is, number exactly. two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but the piece, the piece number two, uh, you've built an MVP. If you've built an MVP, ask yourself, what do you need to get to that next level? Like, what do you need to get from, from an MVP to, to, to the customers? And if the answer is you need, you know, two engineers or four months, then maybe you're better off, you know, going to, to, this, to the same angels that you have already proven your business model to and asking for a bit more money. Or it's basically you have to make decisions based on your specific circumstances instead of just trying to repeat this one stupid playbook where the moment you've got an idea, you've got the pitch deck in place, and now you're shopping for VCs. Because the fundraising is a lot of work. And it's it's a lot of time. It's a time suck. Yes, you have to not yes. spend talking to people, talking to their assistants, like dealing with meetings, dealing with the due diligence. And that's the time that you're not spending by f- focusing on your customers and, and building something that, that, that they will find valuable. So if, if there is a lot of R&D that you need to do, like definitely go for it. Find the right partners. And by saying the right partners, I mean, find the people who will, who will actually help you with an advice. Don't just look for great logos, logos and who is going mm. to look nice on, on, on your cap table or, or whose logo is going to be more appealing on your website. Because the reality is most of your buyers really don't care. Like if you're helped by, by VC A or B, what they're going to be evaluating is whether or not your, your tool solves their problem. So find the right VC that is going to be a good partner for you. 
and, and, and go from there. But also be mindful about scaling, be smart about hiring and not over hiring people. And really just always try to think from the first principles. Like, what is it that I need at this stage? What is it that I need to get to, to the other stage? Not what it is that, you know, uh, LinkedIn says or, you know, VC say or anybody else says. Just think. Yeah, I'm going to leave it there. Just think. Awesome. All right. Well, Ross, thank you very much for the time. I know it's like right at the end of your working day, but this was great. There's so much good stuff in here. I'm sure listeners are going to have to go back through it yeah, twice. You're, you're a pleasure to talk to Ross. Really appreciate you taking the time with us, man. And for a guy who's kind of saying that, you know, you might be tired at the end of the day, you got pretty energized. So thank you for finding some <laughs> unreserved for us. Thank you so much. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. That wraps up this episode of Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks. If you liked this conversation with Ross, check out our interview with Mike Privet, CISO and author of the Return on Security newsletter. In that interview, we get into some similar topics around market dynamics and their impact on cyber innovation and scaling. Lastly, consider leaving a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. New episodes of Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks drop every Monday. Listen and subscribe. We'll catch you next week.